You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Leviticus chapter 11, verses 1 through 45. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud, among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof, and is cloven-footed, but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. Everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. And these you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten they are detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the night hawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe, and the bat." All winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those which have jointed legs above their feet with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind. But all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. And by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every animal that parts the hoof but is not cloven-footed or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches them shall be unclean. And all that walk on their paws among the animals that go on all fours are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening, and he who carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. They are unclean to you. And these are unclean to you among the swarming things that swarm on the ground, the mole rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the lizard, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that swarm, Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until the evening. 
and anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean, whether it is an article of wood or a garment or a skin or a sack, any article that is used for any purpose. It must be put into water, and it shall be unclean until the evening, then it shall be clean. And if any of them falls into any earthenware vessel, all that is in it shall be unclean, and you shall break it. Any food in it that could be eaten, on which water comes, shall be unclean. And all drink that could be drunk from every such vessel shall be unclean. And everything on which any part of their carcass falls shall be unclean. Whether oven or stove, it shall be broken in pieces. They are unclean and shall remain unclean for you. Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern holding water shall be clean, but whoever touches a carcass in them shall be unclean. And if any part of their carcass falls upon any seed grain that is to be sown, it is clean. But if water is put on the seed and any part of their carcass falls on it, it is unclean to you. And if any animal which you may eat dies, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat for they are detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. Our hearts desire to sing your word, for all of your words are true, even these difficult ones. So now, Father, we pray that we would trust you in all that you are and all that you say and all that you do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, tonight is not only a torch week, but it is also a kindergarten through third grade week. Uh, so if you are any of those grades, K through three or fourth through sixth grade for torch, you guys can head on out of here. You guys had to stand up for a long time to hear some really interesting things. And now you don't even get to understand. No, you're going to think about all of these things together with all of these folks. Why don't you guys, yeah, move on out, move on out. You can find your teachers and consolidate with them. Uh, wow, that just took out like half the room. Uh, well, hello. Uh, my name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I would love to meet you. If you're visiting with us tonight, welp. Uh, that was something. Uh, maybe you've already walked out. Uh, Adam just kept reading about different kinds of animals and swarming things and you'd had enough. Uh, well, I guess you wouldn't be hearing me if you did that. Well, I'm glad you stuck around because you wanted to hear, well, what in the world? Uh, I'm not sure many of you this week were asked if you wanted red, green, or Christmas on your monitor lizard, or your tawny owl, or your rock badger. Uh, so what in the world does what we just heard read from Leviticus 11 have to do with anything? If you've been with us for more than uh, two or three years, we've actually 
thought quite a bit about these kinds of food laws from when we uh, were in Exodus a couple of years ago and then when we, when we went through the book of Acts in Acts 10 where Peter saw a vision that we called then the blanket full of bacon come down from the heavens. Uh, but we'll think even more about the place of the law for our present lives in two weeks. But for tonight, we've got a lot to do in considering what it means to be clean versus unclean. Uh, even though you thought what Adam just read was really long, you can thank me that I didn't have him continue on. We're actually going to be uh, considering chapters 11 through 15 tonight. Chapter 11 sets the stage for the kinds of foods that would make an Israelite unclean, but then it goes on to talk about childbirth, about other bodily fluids and skin diseases. Uh, Sophia texted several of us this morning as she and Logan were reading this text uh, over breakfast, and there's like, Pro tip, don't do that. Uh, don't read the, the following chapters over breakfast. Uh, leprosy, skin diseases in chapters 13 and 14. But we're going to think about all of these things together under two headings. And the first, the first thing we're going to think about is how to become clean. But then the second half of this whole thing that we're going to think about together in all of these categories is how to become holy. How to become clean, how to become holy. So first of all, how to become clean. Before we get into animals and dietary restrictions, let's just back up for just a minute. Uh, if this is your first Sunday with us, thinking through Leviticus, we've said that this book, just like every book in the Bible, is trying to answer the question of this. How will a just and holy God dwell in joyful communion with a sinful and rebellious people? The story of the Bible is that a good, a right, a just, a pure, a righteous, loving, life-giving God has created humanity to rule on his behalf as his sub-ruling mediators of his light and life. And yet, the story of humanity from page one of the Bible is a story of these sub-ruling creatures rejecting their role and rejecting their creator, of elevating themselves over and against this good God, no longer acting as conduits, no longer acting as his mediators of his life and love, but now out of an overflow of their corrupt hearts, now polluting, polluting the entire world, not with the divine life and love, but with selfishness, with enmity, with jealousy, with suspicion, with hatred, with death. And so one scholar says that God's purpose and activity in the world is to cleanse and to sanctify while the purpose and activity of Satan and the sinful nature is to profane and to pollute. God intends to cleanse and to sanctify, that is to make holy, while we and the darkness in this world, in our hearts and outside of us, want to intend toward profaning and polluting the world. And so, out of the world of pollution, out of the world of corruption, God calls a people to himself to once again live in his life and his love, and to mediate this life and love to the nations as, a, as it were a new Adam. Where the first one failed in this role, God has now called a new humanity to himself to live out that role. God saves and redeems his people out of their slavery through no doing of their own, and he covenants with his people, Israel, by love and with his presence. And so the rest of Exodus and all of Leviticus is then how this holy and pure God might live and dwell with his sinful and corruptible people. That is, without destroying them. How will he make them clean? How will he make them holy? And so first of all, what does it mean to be clean? What is cleanness? What is holiness? Well, we can tend toward thinking about someone being unclean. 
as some sort of like a moral judgment about them. That's actually not what is happening in the Bible, the majority of the cases. The phrase cleanliness is next to godliness is actually not in the Bible, as many of you would like it to be. That relieves half of you in this room. Uh, that, that, that verse is not in the Bible. Perhaps it really disappoints the other half who wish it was. But cleanliness, purity, cleanness, being clean rather than unclean, refers merely to just a condition, a condition in which you are fit to approach God. You are fit for his presence. So think about like a, a nine-year-old boy who has spent all day out in the dirt and the mud, uh, and before he comes into the house, mom just makes him get clean. She isn't saying that he is immoral. She is just saying that he is not fit to enter the clean house. Let's do something about that first, and then we can come in and enjoy each other. So that's cleanness, whereas holiness refers not to a condition, but a status of belonging to God. Because why? Because God is holy. Holy is something that is separate, that is perfect, that is righteous and pure, perfectly good in life and love. This is God. Holiness isn't just what God does. God does not just do holy things. God is holy. And so what he claims, what he redeems, what he saves, he makes then into his character. He makes these people into his beauty and glory. So Leviticus, there are not only to be holy persons, but God also makes places holy. He makes objects holy. He even makes times and days holy, meaning these things belong to him. And so Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham gives some helpful ways of thinking. He says that everything that is not holy is common, meaning the opposite of holy isn't necessarily unholy, isn't necessarily like bad or corrupt or something. It's just common. It's meaning it's not set apart for his special purposes. And so if it is not holy, then it is common. And then we can divide common things into two groups, the clean and the unclean. Clean things become holy. We can take clean things and they can become holy things when they are sanctified. This is what this word means, to become holy. So clean things can become holy things when they are sanctified. But unclean objects cannot be sanctified. They must first be made clean. You see this? We have unclean things, we have clean things, and these clean things can be made holy things by becoming sanctified, but unclean things cannot skip this process and go straight to holy things. Clean things can be made unclean if they are polluted, and finally, holy items may be defiled and become common, even polluted to become unclean. Sanctification can elevate the clean into the holy while pollution degrades the clean into the unclean. And so, this whole process of blood sacrifice that we've been thinking about, the sacrificial system of Leviticus, both cleanses, it makes unclean things clean, and it sanctifies. It makes clean things holy. And so because of all of this that we can say that all sin is uncleanness, but not all uncleanness is sin. Are you tracking with me there? Like I might say, uh, all tigers are cats, but not all cats are tigers, right? Saying something is unclean isn't necessarily a moral judgment about that status. This is really important for us to point out right up top here because there is nothing inherently sinful about rock badgers or tawny owls. Skin conditions, 
Menstruation are certainly not sinful, but all of these things can put people into time-specific conditions in which they must not approach God. Why? Well, let's get into it. Let's think about food and animals first. Everything that you heard Adam read in chapter 11. We've already considered lots of different kinds of animals that could be sacrificed when we were thinking through chapters 1 through 7 in the sacrificial system. We thought about oxen and sheep and goats and bulls and pigeons. But the sacrificial system doesn't necessarily neatly overlay uh, onto the clean animals. It's not just that clean animals are those that can be sacrificed. There are other clean animals that could be eaten but should not be sacrificed, animals like deer. And there are other unclean animals that couldn't be eaten, but were still important domesticated animals, like donkeys. You could have a donkey and use the donkey, but this was not to be considered an unclean animal, so what the heck? Now, I have read and listened to so many different theories in the past couple of weeks of the what and the why of the biblical rationale for what makes some animals clean and some animals unclean. Like so many, uh, there are just tons and tons of theories about this. And the reason why there are so many theories about this is because it's just not altogether clear from the text. Like, why could Israel eat some kinds of fish and not shrimp? Why cows but not pigs? Why those with the cloven hooves and those who chew their cud but not those with solid hooves who do chew their cud with certain specific exceptions? God, through Moses, just doesn't tell us. There is no like purpose statement of, therefore, do not eat shrimp. They are unclean because that sentence doesn't exist. And so one compelling theory is that throughout the following five chapters, we see a spectrum of life to death of a Genesis 1 creational goodness on one hand, on the one end of the spectrum, uh, then that goes through a series of derivations or consequences or corruption on the other end of the spectrum. So just as sickness and disease is not on the creational intent end of the spectrum of the holiness of God, which we might say is certainly true, then many commentators or scholars will go like animal by animal, with some interesting explanation for why this animal and that are actually some derivation of the creational good intent of why God created this animal to be different than this. And so it's unclean because of this. It's getting away from its Genesis 1-1 intent. Or other theories are that the unclean animals are actually just dirtier, or the unclean animals are more likely to make humans sick by eating them. Maybe any or all of that could be true. But I think the most likely explanation is that all of the unclean animals from Leviticus 11 are meant to imagine some, or trigger some imaginative recollection. Some recollection of the Genesis 3 story of the serpent. Stay with me here. Alistair Roberts explains that the reference to creatures who go on their belly in verse 42 is only the second time in the whole Bible where that phrase, moving on their belly, is mentioned. You know the first? Genesis 3, the serpent who moves on his belly. The suggestion then is that the unclean animals have characteristics of the cursed serpent, and they have the same connection with the curse-bearing earth that the serpent does. And so clean animals have cloven hooves that they, were, they have, as it were, shoes that they're wearing that divide them from the unclean earth. They don't walk on their paws. Clean animals have multi-chambered stomachs. 
You, do you know what a ruminant is? I learned this word this week. To ruminate. Uh, a ruminant is a kind of animal that, well, like a cow does. He has multi-chamber stomachs that then eats and eats and eats. So a ruminant, they ruminate on their food. They thoroughly digest their food. This is in contrast to the serpent who swallows its food whole. Not engaging in the sort of chewing over that is characteristic of righteous meditation upon the world. Unclean birds are birds of prey. They are carrion birds. Clean fish also have scales that serve as a sort of armor against the world of uncleanness surrounds them. We might also consider that sea creatures without scales are most similar to the serpent, things like eels. So these dietary requirements seem to have been exclusive here to Israel. It's a sign of Israel's holy status, but also teaching Israel to be a people who make distinctions, who make distinctions about what they take into their lives. Like the clean animals, they need to be separated from defilement. And I think this kind of explanation is actually the most likely. If, as we've considered, that the tabernacle and the temple system was meant to be a recreated Eden, in which God once again dwells with man and woman, then it makes sense for man and woman to imaginatively avoid the kinds of creatures that separated them from God on page one. And I say imaginatively because it's not like as if a ancient Israelite was picking up a shrimp, like the shrimp would whisper, did not God really say, as you ate it or something like that? That's not happening. But you might imagine that these kinds of animals that I was created to uh, rule over are actually helping me, even as I eat, make distinctions in the world. That in being very deliberate with even the things that they eat, Israel was learning lessons for their wider lives. And so Israel must be discriminating like those animals who ruminate rather than swallowing their food whole. And so in contrast to Deuteronomy 14, which goes just way into way more detail about the actual diet and eating of Israel, Leviticus 11 pays way more attention to defilement, even beyond merely eating these animals. Did you hear that? Pick up on that? That you could become unclean by just touching the carcass of an unclean animal. But again, becoming unclean was not in itself a sin. And most of the forms of defilement mentioned here are actually fairly minor. There's a whole bit about what happens when uh, an unclean animal carcass touches your clothes, your jars, your oven, even your seeds that you've planted. And yet, you would only become unclean for the rest of the day. And then when the evening came, you were once again clean. So what the heck? Here's the thing. From the unclean and polluted nations of the world, God calls a people to himself. Because of God's work of redemption, because of ritual sacrifice, because of consecration, Israel's normal default state of living now was that of being clean. These dietary laws are teaching the people to want to stay there. He has made them clean, and he, they are, are every part of their lives now geared around and revolving around staying there, that they might be holy, W-H-O, holy sanctified, and used for God's purposes. These dietary laws are teaching the people to want to stay there, to be discerning, to be discriminating, to be delib deliberate in their comprehensive lives in serving the God of all things, even down to the calories that they consume. And one implication of these food laws is that if I'm a Jewish person in the time of Joshua or David or Isaiah, and my Gentile neighbor invites me over to eat dinner, this law actually tells me and teaches me to turn down that invitation. 
likely because of the kind of food that will be served and the gods to whom that food will be uh, thanked for and praised for. From the very basic, most regular and necessary thing that I do in my life, eating, consuming calories, an identity is being built up in God's people from the ground up. As God's people, Israel is now meant to think and form in their imaginations that I have a separate identity set completely apart for God's use. So when I am walking through the market, yes, no, no, yes, no, 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 yes. Discrimination, deliberate uh, thought and action that they are being taught. But unlike the kinds of food that, as far as we can only tell, only uh, ancient Israelites comprehensively avoided, all people get sick. All kinds of people have diseases, skin lesions. All men and women experience the kind of bodily discharges that are described in these chapters. And certainly for women with ongoing regularity. Now, in avoiding the real nitty-grittiness of this conversation uh, and just understanding the real tricky waters that I'm about to wade into of like mansplaining a bunch of things, uh, Marcy and I were recently talking about like how unbelievably difficult it must have been for women in all of human history until, I don't know, about like 50 or 60 years ago. Not only for the difficulty of personal hygiene, but then when you read chapters like Leviticus 12 and 15, these are seemingly chapters that make things more difficult for women societally, socially. Passages like this are one more addition in a seemingly increasing case against the Bible as being archaic, as being misogynistic. Now again, this conversation is kind of like the food and animals one, and that we kind of just have to do our best in chapters 12 and 15 to understand the logic of what's going on here. The first thing that we can observe is that while women certainly would have experienced this kind of ceremonial uncleanness with more regularity than men, and again, ceremonial uncleanness is not a place of sin or shame, even every time a husband and wife enjoyed physical intimacy with one another, they were then together unclean for a time. Marital intimacy within the life of Israel was a good and celebrated thing. If you don't believe me, just read the Song of Solomon. So it's not saying that if you are unclean, now you're in a place of shame. That's the first thing that we must acknowledge. But something that we really need to understand is just the geography of the camp. All right? So in the middle, you might say that Israel's camp was a giant circle, and the tabernacle was in the very center of the camp. In the very center of the tabernacle structure was the Holy of Holies, the divine realm, the place of light and life. And then at the periphery of the camp, at the outer edges on all sides, the further from the center is the place of God's decreasing absence. And then all of the wilderness out there beyond the, even the periphery of the camp is a, is a place of utter disorder and chaos. And so there is a constant back and forth of all kinds of people for all kinds of reasons as they become ceremonially unclean for all kinds of reasons as they're constantly moving back and forth, more towards the center, more towards the periphery. Again, not in shame or exile or punishment, but then just back again. There are lots of folks over there, so it's not a time of utter social isolation or it's an unsafe place, but it is a place and a time for cleansing to once again approach the light and life of God. And in the case of the regularity of 
the women without 21st century hygienic products. This served an additional hygienic purpose as well, to have people with regular uh, body fluids flowing uh, to be on the periphery of the camp. It was a cleaner place. But all this brings up what we considered three weeks ago about why blood was so important in the sacrificial system. Leviticus says, for the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. So when there is now life that is flowing outside of the body, the bounds of the body, this is a state of uncleanness. But we should note that not every time you bleed, you have to leave the camp. There's nothing in Leviticus 15 about someone who accidentally cuts his hand or a paper cut that's bleeding. That person actually does not have to go out to the periphery of the camp. There seems to be something specifically important here about the male and female reproductive systems. But even then, in Leviticus 15, a woman just has to be on the outside of the camp for seven days. It doesn't say until there is no blood, just for seven days. For some women, for there's, uh, if it was just an, uh, an issue of blood, it could be less than seven days or more than seven days. So what is going on? Well, remember that this entire tabernacle structure and system is all about an Eden reconstruction. What else took seven days to prepare a place for God to dwell with his people in light and love. Genesis 1. At the beginning of the seven days of Genesis 1, the world is flooded with unbounded waters. Genesis 1-2. And during this seven-day process, specifically on the first day, the waters become bounded. They become confined. They are returned to their rightful place. You may think this is a stretch, but I find it pretty compelling that when these waters become bounded, this is a time, or when the, when the waters are unbounded, this time and period is a time of chaos, is of disorder, of the wilderness. But during this seven-day process of creation, the world then is transformed into a habitable, habitable environment within which humanity is now able to reproduce, as God tells Adam and Eve, to be fruitful and multiply. And so if this is the case, if this seven-day process is a monthly week of recreation in which God is creating a people uh, to dwell with him in life and love and to be fruitful and multiply, then being a woman isn't less than, it is actually more. She is the archetypal Eve. Every woman in the camp is an archetypal Eden itself. She's an ongoing reminder, not only to herself, but to her children, to her family, and to the community that God will provide for her. He will provide order, that he loves his children, that he would provide a place where he would dwell with them in love. Now, there is just so much more to consider there. Uh, there's a lot of smirks going on out there, and I'm, I don't know. Uh, there's, there's a lot to talk about here, and I feel like I might have, uh, yeah, opened up a uh, conversation that we didn't answer. But like the food laws, all of these laws of cleanness and uncleanness, all of this was intended for Israel to consider every single part of their life, every day, every action, whether expected or unexpected, whether small or big, to be about 
how does this, whatever that is, small or big, expected or unexpected, how does this affect my positional relationship with God? In my default position of cleanness as an Israelite, am I now moving toward a place of sanctification, of holiness? Or am I, is this, whatever this is, moving me away from God's presence in uncleanness? Now, while David could absolutely say that the law was sweeter than honey, he loved meditating on the law day and night to maybe even try to come to some deeper conclusions like we've been considering about the why and the what of all of this. All of this would have led to a very meticulous and precise life. I asked Adam to read so much of chapter 11 because I wanted all of you to feel this meticulousness, this repetitiveness. I feel like there was kind of a... a, Sigh of relief when you saw the chapter at the end of the, fi- the last slide. That, that's kind of what I was going for. <laughs> All this repetition. In many ways, I think we could really learn from that. This kind of meticulous precision of life that Israel must have lived in. Like serpents, we 21st century Americans just consume just anything and everything that is out there, almost whole without giving it a second thought, without meditation of whether this thing, whatever it is, is clean, is healthy, is holy. Not considering how this series on Netflix is shaping and transforming my hopes, my desires, my expectations, my demands. Not considering whether this hour on TikTok isn't something that we are consuming, but is rather consuming us. Even in the food that we eat, are we considering our bodies as gifts to be stewarded? And this food, to be thanked God, to be, worshiped, or to be worshiping God through and thanking him for, or are we just consuming things whole, moving as quickly as we can without meditation, without even digestion, without really thinking about it? But do you remember what the whole point of all of these laws were about? In the last verse of what Adam read from Leviticus 11.45, He read this, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. The people were to belong fully and wholly, W-H, whole. They were meant to be fully and wholly devoted to God, to be wholly holy, entirely holy. And to be entirely holy To be here in this state of belonging to God, they could not be in this constant state of flux, of back and forth from clean to unclean. Remember, you cannot be holy if you are not first clean. So how can they belong fully and entirely to God? How can they be holy as he is holy? What's the answer? Well, now secondly, how to become holy. Here's the thing about uncleanness. While not all uncleanness was sin, living lives with such meticulous precision was meant to carry over to the heart. This meticulous precision in actions and even food and all of these things in life was meant to create the same kind of meticulous precision in our hearts internally. And so David can pray, create in me a clean heart. 
In God's presence, Isaiah cried out, Woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. The words that he says make him unclean. He might as well be in the Holy of Holies, having not first gone through the process of ritual cleansing. In the same way, God told the people through Isaiah in Isaiah 1.16, he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. How? Stop eating unclean animals? No. Put away the evil things of your doings before my eyes. Cease to do evil. That's how you become clean. Evil, sin, this took away Israel's default status of being clean. Sinned it, made them unclean. That's why the promise that Aaron read earlier from Ezekiel 36 is so important. That once again, God might take a people from the world of uncleanness, a world of pollution, from the sphere of uncleanness, and once again, change their condition from uncleanness to cleanness. When God says, in that day, then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all of your idols. I will cleanse you. God must do this because, again, as we'll consider more deeply next week, the holy purity and presence of God cannot coexist with the unholy uncleanness of humanity, or at least not without consuming them. So we might even say that the Spirit does not inhabit or abide the unclean pollution of the earth, which is why when one day in a river in Palestine, such a monumental new moment in history actually happens. A man walks down into the river and in identifying himself with the kind of washing that God's people before and after need to be made clean, he goes into the water. And what happens in that moment is not some like sweet cartoon from Precious Moments. What happens in that moment is a new filling of the tabernacle, the temple, The very Spirit of God descends and abides in Jesus, the true tabernacle of God, a renewed, recreated sphere of God's life and light. But in the ministry of Jesus, this isn't just a do-over try again on behalf of the triune God. Something new is happening here. In the old covenant tabernacle or temple system, the tabernacle could be defiled. This tabernacle, this tent, or even that building of the temple wasn't like forever perfect and holy. It could be defiled. It could be made unholy. If Israel ignored the commands of God long enough, if they brought enough of their unclean pollution into the structure and worship of God, he would just eventually leave. This happens over and over in the Old Testament story. Ichabod is the word for this, that the glory has departed from Israel in 1 Samuel 4 or Ezekiel 10. These buildings and structures weren't in and of themselves holy. They were only holy if God's presence was there. And not only that, but in the Old Covenant, the unclean could actually make the clean unclean. With me on there? As Numbers 5 makes this explicitly clear. I think we've got this here, yeah. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or who has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. The unclean must be put out to the periphery of the camp, outside of the people, until they are clean again, Because their uncleanness will make clean Israel 
unclean. And so just as Adam and Eve were excluded from the presence of God, so those who are ritually defiled must be excluded as well. This is sad, but it is serious. Now, we didn't spend much time in chapter 13 thinking about leprosy, but people with skin diseases were always outside the camp, the periphery of the people, excluded from God's presence. But the order of these people, described in Numbers 5, is just remarkable. Numbers 5 describes the leper, those with a discharge of blood, and the dead. If you've got a Bible, flip over to Luke 5. We're going to have this on the screen, but I want you to see this for yourself. We're thinking about this man who down in the river, cleansed, now is filled with the Spirit of God, now becoming this mobile hotspot of God's presence. And he is out and about. And we read this in Luke 5, chapter 12. While he, Jesus, was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand. And now, Ligon Duncan says of this verse that every Hebrew person who witnessed this scene in person or who is reading this text for the very first time would have gotten to the point where Jesus is stretching out his hand and they would have screamed out and said, No, Jesus, no, do not touch him. Do not become unclean. He should be out in the periphery, the boundaries of the camp. If you touch him, you have to go with him. Do not become unclean. But the unexpected and the amazing then happens. Verse 13, And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus doesn't become unclean. The unclean man now becomes clean. Jesus can do what the Levitical and the ceremonial law could never do. If you read Leviticus 12 through 15, there's lots of instructions for what to do with an unclean person, but there is no instruction for the priest on how to make an unclean person clean. They just eventually get there. They either are clean or they are not clean. But then Jesus just starts showing up as a better priest than all of them before and starts making unclean people clean. Flip over to Luke 8. Starting in verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. Jesus, no! Do not let her touch you! But immediately her discharge of blood ceased, and Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. 
Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, Jesus, no, do not become like her, unclean. He called, saying, Child, arise. Sweetheart, get up. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. Leprosy, discharges of blood, death itself, sickness to health, chaos to order, death to life, unclean to clean. Who is this man? Someone who is doing what Moses could not, what Aaron could not, what the entire law could not. Jesus Christ, our great high priest and sacrificial lamb, is bringing the excluded back into the people of God, is bringing the excluded into the presence of God, that he might, by the blood of his power, now wash and cleanse and sanctify his people for God's presence forever, not consuming them by his holiness, but transforming them by his holiness as their mediating priest of God's life and light. Now, we'll talk more about our relationship with the law in two weeks, why we Christians are actually absolutely free to eat that bacon-wrapped shrimp and do so not inconsistently. But here's the thing. Unlike Israel's, unlike Israel who at this moment in history in Leviticus 11 are people of cons- being consecrated to the Lord, these people in Leviticus 11, their default state is that of cleanness, We are all a people of default uncleanness. We are unfit for God's presence. Having rejected him, worshipped ourselves, loving the sphere of darkness and death rather than his sphere of light and life, we must become clean. This has not changed at the coming of Christ. This is the same now as it was in Leviticus 11. We must be cleansed before we come into the presence of God. In Revelation 21, the Apostle John sees a vision. At the end of days, things are full of joy and hope, but the Son of Man says this. He says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then later in the chapter, he says this in describing the city of God. He says, this is Jesus. He says, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. These ceremonial categories of uncleanness that we have just read about, thought about, and that Israel lived their entire life these ceremonial, ceremonial category of, categories of uncleanness were all along pointing us, 
preparing us for moral categories of defilement. Those who are morally defiled cannot dwell with God, which is all of us. There is none who are righteous. No, not one. But Jesus goes out of the camp on our behalf. As Hebrews 13, 12 tells us, he is taken outside of the city to the periphery, away from God's presence, where he suffers and dies for the unclean and the sinful as the clean and holy one, that he might make them clean. Those who would be outside the camp with him and identify with him in their uncleanness, that his cleanness might make them clean, which is the entire point of the whole book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews 10 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, not just approach the tabernacle, but go into the very middle of God's presence, We can have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, through his body broken and his blood spilled. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. He will make us clean and holy. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Internally. What the law could never do. But we must come to him and come through him. Without him, we are without hope. Excluded from the presence of God for eternity. Unlike the people who are outside of the camp for just a time, without Christ, we are excluded forever in eternal shame, punishment, and death. But for those in Jesus who trust him, who love him, who delight in him, who cling to him, who are now no longer going back and forth in constant states of uncleanness to cleanness, now that he has made us eternally clean, having sprinkled our hearts from an evil conscience, that he might make us, his people, the place of his dwelling The tabernacle, his people. The temple now are his people. The place of his dwelling, living lives of holiness, of full and whole, entire devotion, of unencumbered, no more back and forth belonging to God, but now and forever with him. Not near him, but him in us. Now being made positionally holy, now we can live out our lives in practical holiness as well. Be holy, therefore, as the Lord your God is holy. Holiness is not what God does. It is who he is. And his people belong to him. He has not given us grace so that we can live our lives however we want. That is not a life of light and life. He has given us grace so that we might finally and freely Walk with him in obedience, in holiness, in joy, in life, to know him completely. I'm just convinced that Leviticus 11 through 15 is just always on the minds of the New Testament writers. Especially Peter and Paul, who just quote it directly all the time. Be holy as the Lord is holy. 
But Christ has come to cleanse us entirely, that we might now be freed to live holy lives, pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is our life. Cleansed, sanctified, in joy, and in life. What a gospel of grace and love, that we might agree with the words of David that we professed earlier from Psalm 23, 6. Words that David could have only dreamed of in faith as he was constantly moving back and forth from states of being unclean to clean to unclean to clean, moving outside the city for a couple of days or a week and then coming back that he might be fit for God's presence and only in faith that he might say, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is what Jesus has come to do, to cleanse us and to sanctify us for God's presence forever. What a gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, we approach you not with irreverence, not cavalierly, but reverently, respectfully, in worship with hearts of love and of gratitude, the lengths at which you have gone to, O triune God, to bring us near, to not only bring us near, to, but to bring us in, to move us from the courtroom to the family room, to justify us, but to adopt us, to cleanse us, to sanctify us. Oh God, we are so thankful. God, we pray that this law, this Old Testament law, we might consider, we might understand deeply, but we might be freed in Christ who has kept it perfectly. Help us to love you through it. Help us to live lives that are entirely yours consecrated to you. God, we are so thankful. Help us to be a church who is holy. Why? Because you are holy and we are yours. We love being yours. Help us to be even more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www dot Christchurchabq.com